Hi everyone, and welcome to Reader's Digress. My name is Kate Kiriaku, and I am one of the co-hosts of this podcast. I just wanted to give a short disclaimer at the beginning of this episode that this was Molly and I's very first recording, and therefore we did not handle the audio in an expert level, and it is a little bit hard to hear some of our conversation. That being said, we really enjoyed having the conversation and wanted to share it, so if this is the kind of thing that really bothers you, we would suggest that you start at our third episode, which has a much better audio quality and was not just recorded over Zoom. One other thing we wanted to add is that we changed the format of our podcast on the third episode as well. So if you are finding yourself feeling a little bit lost in our conversation, don't worry. It gets a little bit more structured over time. We hope you have as much fun listening to this as we did recording it. Shall we clap and start? Yeah, I guess so. I'm nervous. Me too. But you know what? It doesn't Why? Really <laughs> no one even knows we're doing this. <laughs> but it's going to be official. Um, what is it that I said last time? It has to be bad. So let's just. Like... <laughs> <laughs> it's like when you write something the first time it ha- it's going to be bad. So just accept it and go forward. <laughs> okay. Yes. I think that should be our tagline actually. It has to be bad. Hello, welcome <laughs> to Reduce Digress, where it has to be bad. <laughs> Hi, everyone, and welcome to Reduce Digress. My name is Kate Kiriaku. And my name is Molly Fox. And we are going to tell you about a book we read, because that's what this podcast is about. <laughs> Specifically a nonfiction book. Kate, what was the tagline that you came up with? <laughs> um, this is a podcast where we read nonfiction books so that you don't have to. <laughs> oh, I like that. Yes. Yes, that is good. So yes. uh, the one we chose to start this podcast with is called Jesus and John Wayne. And... This is the part that I meant to ask you about before we started, but do you know how to pronounce the author's name? You know what? I do not. I've been pronouncing it Kristen Kobe's Dumez. Okay. If that's I've been accurate, I apologize to Kristen because I know that I can pronounce her first name. <laughs> yes. First name is Kristen. I was pronouncing it Kristen Kobe Dumez, but could be wrong. Okay. It's one of those probably. um so we're gonna figure it out for real and put this in at some point but the um tag of the book is how evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation oh how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation the white part is crucial (laughs) quite important (laughs) can't leave out that white. i messed it up on purpose just so i could highlight it for you okay (laughs) just so that i could tell you how important it actually is um okay so just to tell you a little bit about the book um Molly and I have both been uh, reading and talking about this book for a very long time and can't stop ourselves from making personal connections and bringing it up in every conversation that we have with pretty much anyone. Yeah, Um, which affectionately referring to it as the Bible now, which yes, blasphemous, (laughs) but do we care? Absolutely not. Also like, is it blasphemous or are we just like, "Mm, okay. I think it's like new age, not blasphemy, because we have moved on. <laughs> okay. It's post-blasphemous. <laughs> it's post-modernist blasphemy, okay? Get it together. 
<laughs> um, if you don't get it, that's your problem, actually. So, uh, all right. So um, I'm going to, I, I, I really love the app Goodreads. It is my best friend during this pandemic. And so I wrote a very short blurb uh, to review this book. And so I'm just going to read that because I feel like that's the best way that I can summarize everything that's going on in this book, <laughs> because there is quite a bit. Um, okay, so I would say that this book expertly weaves together a history of the evangelical movement, heightened nationalism and militarism through the lens of white patriarchy. Um, for a nonfiction book, it's refreshingly readable, which is great, um, and it pulls in the influence of popular culture and the building influence of siloed media, which we will get to in our second episode about this book. Um, there's so many themes to talk about in this book that we're actually going to do two episodes <laughs> because we can't help ourselves. <laughs> um, <I'm not> talk. <laughs> So essentially the way that this book is organized, which is a pretty important thing to touch on, uh, is that it is 70 plus years of uh, history of evangelicalism and masculine anxiety. Uh, the through line being that women, girls, and America at large <laughs> is under constant threat and attack and can only be defended by the quote unquote manly men of evangelicalism. Um, so over the course of this modern history, these threats included communism, feminism, of course, uh, terrorists in the Middle East, an abundance of culture wars, spanning everything from gay marriage to birth control to immigration to integration, and many more. Uh, so she directly takes on the myth that evangelicals held their nose to vote for Trump and did it unenthusiastically and instead proves why his presidency wasn't an anomaly, but rather the logical progression of American white uh, masculinity and really white supremacy. Yes, yes. Very well summarized. And as I think we will touch on maybe more in the second episode, it is that is like the key part of her argument that evangelicalism did not break down into Trumpism, it built to Trumpism. Yeah. Um, which as I am, I'm an ex-evangelical, I was raised evangelical in Ohio, and I have since like walked away from that worldview. But as someone who watched the 2016 election and was really shocked and could not understand why so many people who professed a faith in Jesus Christ with an evangelical worldview would vote for someone who seemed so um, opposed to all of those things. And this book has really helped me to understand the reality that Donald Trump actually was right in line with what evangelicalism has become. And the not even what it's become, but what it's always been and what it's been like fighting to achieve for so long. So we decided to break out a few themes that we think are best used to dig into the parts of the book. And today, Kate, which, which two did we decide on? Um, so today we're talking about the through lines of victimhood, which has a couple of different subcategories that we'll get into later, um, and performative masculinity. Next time we'll be talking about identity politics, um, theology versus the culture of evangelicalism, and then the culture of consumption and capitalism that inevitably is interwoven um, within everything that happens because this is a book about America. So obviously <laughs> capitalism is a big part of that. <laughs> yeah. 
and she actually mentions I think towards the end of the book like she frames America with the pronoun pronouns herself which is honestly a very crucial way of understanding it the way this toxic masculinity is used to protect America and of course America has to have a female persona otherwise that like male fantasy couldn't like proceed in the same ways yeah absolutely and spoiler alert (laughs) we need protected from them (laughs) so much of it is a little bit later protect our (laughs) girls and women like from you from you (laughs) yeah actually if you guys would stop sexually assaulting and raping and uh just generally being terrible to people then maybe they would not be needing so much protection um, great point you've made a great point (laughs) i sort of started with victimhood in my notes that i took because i think that victimhood in in some ways leads to the performative masculinity that we see today so the one of the things that i thought was an important mm, progression or not progression but like a key element to how this is able to operate the and by this i mean like the aggressive male position that is meant to defend and be tough and rugged and how they were able to take Jesus, who was very progressive and radical, but in most senses, very peaceful into this like cowboy John Wayne person. Um, And I think a lot of it has to do with victimhood because if you present yourself as the victim of something like persecution or um, being ostracized within your own country, which has never happened to white men, but, but they continue in this, culture to purport that they are being victimized like they have all the seats of power but they still get to pretend they're victims but if you have victimhood as your like worldview you can use that as justification to be an aggressor because if you are being victimized then you you can't be held accountable for a the bad things you do because of the trauma you experienced and B, you get to be very aggressive and defend yourself, even though the reality is they have nothing to defend themselves against. Like they're very safe in our society and protected by all the systems that exist around us. Um, the systems that they built, might I add. Yeah. <laughs> key, key point. Um, yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I was listening to another podcast, um, which I'm not going to promote because we're <laughs> our own podcast. Pay for promotion or you don't get it, okay? Promote this other podcast. Um, But I was listening to another podcast that was delving into the psychology behind um, the political divisions in our country and why it's so hard to change people's minds. And a part Mm -hmm. of that that they discussed is this idea of moral convictions. And I think that this is a good thing to bring up at the beginning of this because the idea is essentially that you have these uh, moral convictions that are formed when you're very young, usually, you know, before you're 18 years old, mm-hmm. you become a very core part of your worldview. And I find it very interesting that those are things that typically are very, very, very difficult to change in someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah is if a part of your moral compass, so to say, or your moral convictions are that you are always the victim, then it becomes very, very difficult to convince you that 
no matter what you do, whether it's violent or racist or misogynistic or whatever, that you're mm-hmm. not doing the quote unquote right thing. Yeah. Because you are doing it in self-defense, right? So right. I think that that's a big part of this culture is that like, whenever you have these big moral convictions that guide everything that you do, you need to find a way to slot everything into those moral convictions to make them make sense in the world. Um, Or you need to reevaluate your moral convictions. And most people don't want to do the latter because it's really hard. (laughs) And it's not really that fun to go through and be like, wow, I've been wrong about so many things my whole life. Yeah. Um, and everyone around me who I love is also wrong. Like there's a, there's a loss of community that often comes with reevaluating that moral code. Yeah. And it's very difficult to strike out on your own when your support system is like, what are you doing? That's insane. Yeah. Especially, yeah. When you when your support system is specifically encouraging you not to reevaluate those moral yeah. convictions and instead yeah. just doubling down on those at every chance that you get, it is very hard to extract yourself from that narrative. And I think another part of the like victimhood storyline or narrative throughout this book. So it's like the moral conviction where like everything has to fit into this one worldview that you've already determined is true. Yeah. If, if something else does not fit into that moral code or that worldview, then that's the thing that's wrong. So I think that that there's a lot of, especially now, um, questioning of authority and uh, distrust of institutions, because um, if your institutions are not backing up your own worldview, then you don't question your worldview, you question them. And so I think that there's like been a, obviously a huge increase in online extremism, which is kind of a different topic, but I think fits into the way that she frames this book. Yeah, I think it's like the natural progression, mm-hmm. which in the the way she organizes the book, she starts with a lot of, a, a couple of chapters. I think the first two are devoted to concepts of John Wayne, which she focuses a lot in the book and that he became this figure who was risen almost to the same kind of level as Jesus for his, um, what he symbolized as like a rugged masculine um, crusader savior and would fight for the right thing, even though, I mean, not to like get into the weeds, but if you break down the like John Wayne movies, they're colonialists, they're, they're misogynists, they're like horrible. It's, they, they aren't symbols that we should be proud of, but they became somehow contorted and like attached to ideas of like Jesus as, as like a savior too. So she focuses on that as an identity that, that white men in evangelical circles began to strive for. And once you're striving for that, you like, like you said, Kate, you have to do a lot of like gymnastics mentally in order to justify that because if like John Wayne is only good if the Indians are bad and I say Indians because that's the term they would have used like you can't justify what he did if you are seeing Native American Native people as human beings so that you have to do all these things of othering people so like communists black people anyone that was not a white evangelical (laughs) man was an other and women white women are very complicit in all of those things but they 
also suffered oppression from men. So not the oppression that many groups felt, but they still experience it because they are other from like the ideal, which is a white man who's leading everything. A white man so, trouble with that. <laughs> yeah, which is embarrassing as, we, as we've said. But so like, she starts there to like set up this premise that this is the idea that became really romanticized and, and symbolic and that they strove for. And when you understand that that's like the position they're heading towards and that they think is good, it I think helps you understand why they had to do all of the like twisting weird things that they did to get there. Um, and that victimhood is like a place that they found that made it very easy to justify doing the things that they did. Yes, I did after the first, uh, so Molly read this book or, or started reading this book before I did. And after I read the first chapter, I immediately texted her and just said, I cannot believe how messed up America is because men wanted to run around and play cowboy. And geez, how embarrassing is that? Like, I cannot truly- So embarrassing. And that's why we ended up where we are. It's because you wanted to go play cowboy. Like, oh my God. Okay, I'm all like, go do that for cosplay. But like, did you need to do like American politics? Mm, I don't think so. Yes. yes. And so I started reading this book in the summer of 2020, like maybe July, August of 2020. And I didn't finish it until like January of 2021, maybe December of 2020, because it is such a, it was difficult for me to read because I'm so close to like the evangelical story. And getting down into the nitty-gritty of it and seeing like that I was traumatized by something because like boys wanted to play dress up is like really difficult to process for obvious reasons and like I think what's so upsetting is that at the heart of it it like deflates into something as stupid as that like there isn't some grand romantic like manifest destiny behind all this bullshit it's really just like well we like ourselves and we're anxious that you don't like us and so we're gonna put on a cowboy hat and kill you <laughs> like that's what it boils down to and it's very difficult to deal uh, with <laughs> um yes I also think that, like as I was talking about this I was like okay this is so embarrassing for you guys like all you want <laughs> be like a cowboy like okay pretty embarrassing um, but the thing that was like most embarrassing to me is that there is nothing more mortifying to me than being inauthentic to yourself and then having someone notice and call you out. Yeah. On and so yeah. the idea that like there's, and this is a through line uh, in the book that I picked up on in so many different facets, but basically it's this idea that like everything is a performance, like you, yeah. they're holding themselves up to a certain standard mm -hmm. um and that's not who any of them are at all <laughs> you know they hold up the military as being this ideal perfect uh entity that is never to be criticized and yet so few of these men that became major players in the evangelical movement actually served in the military um which again okay not everybody is made out for military service but if you yourself did not serve, you don't get to criticize other people who also did not serve. Well, um, and it's because they didn't serve, not across the board, but in many of the cases, it's part of the reason they're able to romanticize it so much because they haven't actually been to war and seen people killed in front of them and, and seen the reality of how bad that is. And so because they have that distance from it, they continue to be like, wow, war, killing our enemies, 
being men, conquering, saving damsels. It's like, you fucking dummy. Like if you just saw it for real, you'd be like, yo, nothing is worth this. Let's go to therapy. (laughs) Like nothing, nothing is worth what war does to, to human bodies. And yet, because men can't talk about their feelings, <laughs> we find ourselves here over and over again. Yeah, you know, and it's not even just the the serving aspect. It's also, um, you know, you have all of these men who, again, are the leaders of this movement that are preaching over and over chastity and purity in your sex life. And then they themselves have massive sex scandals, many of which are actually assaulting women or otherwise um, having non-consensual relationships with women. Um, Well, and that goes to the other like bullet point under victimhood, which is the actual victims get maligned and silenced because men are pretending to be victims. And they can't let anyone else take that spot because it would topple their justification for being aggressive and bad. Right. And also, if you're not the victim and you're involved, what does that make you? Right. Like, that means that you were the perpetrator or you were in it happening. So, you know, it's again having to do the mental gymnastics. Well, if I'm not the victim in this situation and yeah, I was very much involved, what was my role? And then if you unravel that just a little bit more, you get into the fact that often they're the predator in these situations. Yes. Actually, I'm going to get up for a second because I want to grab another book. We're not talking about this today, but it's important because I think it's within the same realm. It's called Virgin Nation, and it's by someone named Mols- Molesliner. God, it's another woman. Sarah Molesliner is her name. And this book talks about the way um, evangelicalism used sexual purity as a way to make themselves feel safe. So around communism and national security concerns, sexual purity became a way to um, control national security. And if we were pure as a nation, then we would be blessed by God and therefore protected by him. And so the two became like deeply entwined with each other that sexual immorality, which is like a huge buzz issue in our country with like the gay marriage and even like abortion gets into it. But the reason it is so entrenched in people it's not just a religious thing. It comes down to this ideology that if we are not sexually pure, we will have a nuclear attack against us or something like people. I don't think realize that that is the thought, the thought process, but it is what's happening when, when the anxiety around sexual purity, like peaks up like that. Yeah. And I think we talked about this briefly when we were preparing for our first recording. <laughs> quote unquote, preparing. We're doing amazing, folks. <laughs> quote unquote, preparing when we just texted each other, ah, like 50,000 times a day. Beaming like, emojis 20 times a day. Yes. Um, Continue. Cuking emojis and cowboy hats. Um, <laughs> Nothing, if not scholars. <laughs> This is something that we talked about before too, which is like the foundation that evangelical has in its theology, which is that um, humans are born with sin in their hearts and that they are not perfect. And the reason why they're able to get into heaven is because of um, Jesus's sacrifice and the fact that he came down to earth and um, was murdered 
and yeah. uh, it was for them and for their souls, right? And so that foundation of the theology is extremely easy, it turns out, to apply to essentially everything. Because if you're saying that people are inherently bad, uh, it allows for you to extrapolate that in so many different ways, um, including yeah. the idea that if we're all inherently bad, no one else can be trusted. Yes. And so it's just even more justification for the xenophobia and just outright racism that we've seen in yeah. Well, it's, it goes to that ability to say that if you are other from me in any way, like including your religious worldview, then you are evil. Because mm -hmm. the only way that we keep ourselves from being evil is by giving ourselves over to Jesus Christ in a very particular narrow worldview. So if you haven't done that and said the prayer, accepted Jesus into your heart and asked forgiveness for your sins, blah, 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 then you are evil because it's like, it's nothing personal guys. It's nothing personal. We're all evil. I just happened to say the prayer and therefore I'm not, but you Muslim person, I'm sorry. It's nothing personal. You just are. It's like, okay, go fuck yourself. <laughs> this is not helpful. I'm sorry. Obviously I'm getting mad. <laughs> Nothing personal, but in fact, it's extremely personal. <laughs> okay, so something you said made me think about, I still don't understand how Jesus, who, like you said, was so pacifist that he was murdered, he let them take him to the cross, and that's inherently necessary to their theology, that like he had to willingly die in order to cover the sins of humanity. And yet, Jesus, that figure has somehow been transformed into this heroic, mighty, bloodthirsty warrior. Like, how did you get there? How did you get there? And the answer is because you needed a way to justify your own weird bloodlust for like, I can only get hard if people are dying thing. So you were like, well, Jesus was crazy too. <laughs> like rock and roll. <laughs> rock and roll, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. You know, I, I think it's also important to talk about the secular changes that our nation was going through at the time that this really rose to prominence. Yeah. Um, and by this, I mean, the idea of masculinity and militarism and evangelicalism being really tied together. And a yeah. part of that- it's national security, like it was all, um, yeah. And a part of what she explains in the book is that these ideas of masculinity were formed post the industrial revolution and post many people working in offices and not in manual labor. And so yeah. there was an anxiety that if men don't have this masculine quote unquote labor to mm -hmm. do, then what are they good for? Right. Yeah. Um, and so that anxiety produced this idea that like they needed to amp up the protection instead of the being able to provide. And so, you know, if, if that is your main objective, then mm -hmm. you have, to have someone to fight and you have to have someone to protect people from. And yes. so it, it marries very well together. The idea that you need to protect people um, and also the idea that you need to have something to do to be useful. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's also this like myth of male fragility that she talks about in the book. Um, one of the parts specifically that I remember is the book that was uh, written by this lovely woman, uh, Maribel Morgan. 
And she yeah. wrote this book, The Total Woman, where she talks about how you need to essentially dress up in a different outfit and meet your husband naked at the door every day with baked cupcakes and uh, <laughs> necklace of pearls. And also your children should be perfect at all times and you should have a hundred of them, et cetera, et cetera. You know the idea. Um, <laughs> I, I marked that it's page 62 that she talks about like the different outfits and there's one that she calls um it was a quote-unquote gypsy costume not okay to say but fine gypsy costume consisting of beads bangles and bare skin and at the top on my sticky note I wrote women performing within performative masculinity ew <laughs> yes gross disgusting take off your costume that just reminds well, me like beats bears battle circle <laughs> that's exactly what it's like and to to be clear you should absolutely wear costumes if that's your thing and you like that but you shouldn't be telling women that that is the way that they should express their sexuality because if they don't then their husbands will feel emasculated like first of all if your husband feels emasculated that's probably his problem (laughs) like they dudes will be they will say they're emasculated about anything they will leave their garbage all over the place and you'll be like hey could you be a part of this family and they'll be like how dare you cut my penis off like I'm so you to castrate me over me not taking the trash out <laughs> oh my god uh, yeah no i i totally agree like if you if role-playing is your thing girl do it, it Great. awesome yeah. But you don't need to write a book forcing other women to role play with their husbands or else um, their marriage will fall apart. Like or you're basically else. threatening them. And it was just- Write a book called Role Play or Else because that would be- Role Play or Else. There's this part in it where she says, um, in the book uh, that this woman had written, uh, she had said that uh, for working women, it's especially important that you treat your husband like a king because a man's masculinity may be threatened by your paycheck. Um, a wife needed to let her husband know that he was her hero and it was her job to put her husband's, quote, tattered ego, unquote, back together at the end of each day by admiring his masculine qualities, his muscles or his whiskers, for example. <laughs> of calling anyone's facial hair his whiskers was so upsetting to me in addition to everything else that's going on in this sentence now you all know why we sent so many barfing emojis speaking of that I wrote some notes about that like the role that women begin to are obligated to take on in order to protect masculinity um something I wrote was women are expected to meet all of men's needs in order for the men to reach peak masculinity. So we are a part of them reaching masculine ideals. However, women are also expected to fully meet their own needs. So female needs are not a male problem, but male needs are a female problem, Yes, which is so frustrating. And I, I'm not always very good at being like, not all men are like this because I just want to make blanket statements and and be mad about things, but I know that not all men are like this. However, with that, all boys in our society are socialized by our society to not care as much about women's needs or other people's needs as girls who are identified as and raised as girls are taught to pay attention to other people's needs. So I don't even say that as like, 
fucking men are so awful. It's the problem is the way we are like socializing boys and girls differently. So boys are not learning the skills to do that the way women do. And it becomes like an inherent part of our personalities. And so then it's mistaken as biology, which it's like, bitch, no, it's not. It is not. (laughs) Absolutely. I think, you know, there's this, um, element of responsibility that women feel for everyone's needs and feelings around them um, that I think a lot of men don't feel and not because they don't have the capacity to also be empathetic and to take care of other people but because they're not expected to and so um, I think that that's exactly what you're talking about with the socialization is you know again we bring on our own problems we're the ones doing it right Um, And I think that was something that I thought about a lot as well in terms of performative masculinity is that the performance of masculinity is far more important than actually carrying out the masculine tasks. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter as much that you served in the army if you revere the army like you served in the army, right? Um, And it doesn't matter if you are actually sexually pure, so long as you tell, you perform that role. Um, And yeah, it's uh, pretty frustrating to watch because of course, no matter what these expectations are, no one is ever going to do it perfectly because we're all human beings. And so the idea that any one of us would be quote unquote, perfectly performing any specific role is ludicrous. Yeah. Well, and I think what gets even more frustrating is the reality that men are expected to perform and congratulated for performing masculinity and, and given a pass when that performance falls apart and we see what they're really like, but women are not allowed to do anything but actually deliver. So if they don't perform their femininity and, and live it out in the correct way, i.e. beats bears Battlestar Galactica, (laughs) then it's their fault if their husband cheats on them because they did not meet his sexual needs. Mm -hmm. And these, those victim blaming things are folded into every aspect of evangelicalism in order to preserve fragile masculinity and tell them that they're doing a good job and that they're great and that they're the head of the house, even when they're like not leading at all. And they're the reason things keep falling apart. And, and then because you have to have a scapegoat, you have to have someone to blame. Of course, the convenient person is the woman. And in the Bible, that bitch is the one who ate the apple first, okay? It is right there in the pages of the good book. Uh, you are the reason. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, I hate I it. That is not theologically sound. Like, um, you can, we, we can't get into this, but Eve was not the, the original sin doer. Like, she was tricked by the devil so if you think that you could outsmart the devil go for it (laughs) also where was adam when his wife was being misled by a serpent okay where is the leader of that household i might ask (laughs) where was adam and his sword and his cowboy hat then (laughs) probably couch surfing and watching pornography (laughs) like the rest of these people um anyway can't get a good wi-fi connection in the garden of eden yeah. right not only is this performative in terms of gender roles but 
there's something really poetic about the fact that the evangelical movement helped get not one, but two people who were previously on television into the presidency, and that is Reagan and Trump. And so, like, there is something very um, specific about what they're looking for. And so long as, again, you can act that role, even if you aren't someone who is carrying out these actual traits, um, that's enough, right? Yeah. Yeah, something I wrote down, because the way I organized my notes was I went from victimhood and how that is a justification to perform a very toxic masculine ideal, and then how that led, like, trickled into politics. So what started to happen in, like, the, I think, 70s um, was that the Republican Party, which was not then what we now think of it to, as today, but Republicans saw that evangelicals were this large homogenized group. And I'm gonna pause for a second and explain what I mean by that. So Kristen does a really good job of explaining the way evangelicalism has become what it was from many, many, many denominations that actually believe quite disparate things. So Catholics and Protestants believe significantly different things and they wouldn't consider themselves to be the same religion, i.e. Well, I mean, same in some ways, but different enough that they would be like throwing shade at each other for sure. So <laughs> evangelicalism consists of, of churches that are equally different, but because of consumerism and capitalism, which we'll talk more about next time, they have homogenized into this culturally same group of people that they, that organize under like an umbrella of thought. So re when Republicans realized that there was such a large homogenized group, they could use them to win elections. So they began to adopt not only the values like, uh, you know, family values, traditional marriage, no abortion, et cetera. So they adopted the values, but also the tactics. So victimhood and then very loud and proud performative masculinity. Mm -hmm. And I wrote down literally performers, Ronald Reagan. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yes, yeah. there's something like so poetic about the fact that they have idolized people who are literally performing um, in this quest to perform masculinity. Yeah. And not yeah. to like, too much shade, but like Donald Trump performed everything, including being the president. He did not know how to do it. He did not do it well. He, even his signature, which was like a bunch of weird staccato lines was like the performance of a signature. Okay, <laughs> nothing about that guy is authentic. I agree. It came up so many times during the presidency, even the things that like he did, he did everything just for the outrage and the, the attention essentially. Right. Um, he literally became president for the attention. Like he had no intention of actually wanting the job of president of the United States, because guess what? It's a hard job. <laughs> um, and there was so much, so much reporting about the fact that he got into the role and was like, actually, I hate this. <laughs> and I heard reporting, which, you know, this is like hearsay, honestly, I don't actually know this for, for a fact, but that like on election night, there was a lot of like shock and like, oh boy, I didn't really think this was going to work out like this. And just a lot of like, well, what are we going to do now? Of course, we never saw that like on the public stage. Trump would never admit that he didn't really want to do it because that would go against his whole performance. But I do think that there was a lot of like, whoa, shit, we didn't actually mean for this to go this far. 
because then it was like, oh, now we actually have to do it. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. it's like Trump obviously hates working. Like his his work strategy is file for bankruptcy and go golf. You know, like right. <laughs> <laughs> which is not really a strategy so much as an evasion tactic. <laughs> that like report that was like as he was leaving, some staffer was talking to the press and was like, you know, no one can say that Donald Trump didn't love to work. He was such a hard worker and, you know, he watched all the shows, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, girl, that's what you think working is? It's like watching Fox and like hitting the Sunday shows. What are you talking about? I mean, if that's the case, then like half of all people over 65 could have been president. Yeah, like if they do too. Color me the president. I've watched every season of The Bachelor. Like, For real? I did it. Nailed it. Oh my gosh. There's my cabinet appointment. Biden. (laughs) (laughs) So I do want to, probably we should have done this a long time ago, but I do want to talk about what we mean when we're talking about performative masculinity. Um, So the idea of gender performance was something that has come into the popular vernacular, but was not originally in our kind of understanding of gender. I think it's something that has really um, been introduced and used a lot since the 90s. And Judith Butler was a scholar that I think might've been one of the first people to talk about gender performance. I could be wrong. I am not an expert on gender performance or uh, gender theory. (laughs) So Judith Butler wrote this book in 1990 called Gender Trouble. And she talks about, which I love, love the title, Go Judith. And it essentially talks about how gender is a social construction rather than a biological function. And that is where I think most of our modern understanding of gender and sex comes from today. But I bring this up just to say that I feel like the gender performance aspect of this is directly related to the socialization that we talked about. Um, And I don't know that everybody necessarily thinks about it in those terms, Um, but it's a really useful lens for this conversation (laughs) because it shows that like there's nothing inherently necessary about military militarism being a part of masculinity you don't have to have that happen (laughs) like that is something that we have forced people to internalize about masculinity um and so that is also something that we as a society control right yeah in Kristen in the book talks a lot about dr james dobson who for those of you who don't know is a pastor and a psychologist well maybe not a pastor evangelical leader though thought leader and psychologist who started Focus on the Family, which is based in Colorado Springs. And throughout the 90s and 2000s, it was, I mean, it still is, but it was a huge vehicle via the radio for evangelical thought and um, radio programs, et cetera. And he wrote many books and a lot of them were on parenting. That was a lot of what he focused on and, and how to raise children. And you see in his writing very clear binary thought that like boys should be running around outside and jumping and bruising themselves, running around with sticks, having fights and girls should be taught to like play with dolls and dress up and learn how to bake. And and none, none of that is inherently bullshit, but it's like, it is once you say that only girls can do that and only boys can do that. Otherwise 
something bad happens. But what is frustrating to me when you talk about these gender binaries, I have not had a satisfactory explanation as to what happens. What is the bad thing that actually happens if you let girls and boys be fluid in the way they express their gender? And I know it goes like emotionally and psychologically back to the idea of national security it's our way of trying to control our own destiny and our own safety is if we if we let the fabric of society break down then what happens next people marry donkeys and it's like well that's quite a leap sir but even if we got there assuming the donkey could consent i don't see what that does to society like again obviously the donkey can't but if it could that would be fine honestly (laughs) (laughs) but my point is that you can't give me a good explanation as to what happens if we let gay people get married or boys wear dresses or whatever yeah there are a lot of these sort of slippery slope moral arguments that in essence don't really say anything at all other than we don't want it to be that way yeah and it's like the imaginary divided state that like dissolves into chaos and and then it's like 1984 or whatever and they they use all of this like inflammatory language that's like that's what could happen and it's like that is what could happen for many 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 reasons besides gender expression (laughs) like yes that's not going to be the reason that happens but okay right like uh obviously it's always framed in terms of fear right so like um playing on the worst thing that people can conceive of happening and the worst thing that a lot of people can conceive of is this like dystopian reality where everything has fallen apart and everyone is left to fend for themselves and we don't have the modern amenities that we enjoy now and we're at constant civil war or or something in that vein um and the idea to me that allowing a transgender person to use the bathroom in public and not have to like be really uh scared that they'll be attacked while doing so that that would cause this dystopian reality that we should all be scared of is is the most um far out thing that I can possibly conceive of because I'm like how are we making these connections like how is it that if a woman goes to work or if a transgender person uses a public bathroom or if a gay person gets married or if um you know, any of these things, or if a little boy wears a dress, that that suddenly the world will collapse. I, I don't understand. Well, the thing that always like gets me about that is, so if you think about the transgender using a bathroom problem, quote unquote problem, the the argument that many evangelical leaders make is that if you let someone who identifies as a woman, but isn't woman use a woman's bathroom, then men could just walk right in there. And it's like, okay, so we're agreeing that the problem is not a transgender person. The problem is like (laughs) fucking men. (laughs) Like you're saying that you, again, it's the like, we need to protect ourselves from ourselves. Like then fix yourselves. Okay. (laughs) Transgenderism. The issue is that men are preying on children. That's the problem. And you can't stop that just because you, make them use men's bathrooms like not to mention yeah it it, it's just it's all um obviously non-logical and 
Um, the justification is always that like America at large needs to have this moral compass that is determined by these very specific people rather than we should all agree to a set of rules that makes everybody comfortable. Like many of these men uh, in the evangelical movement just don't care whether or not somebody else is comfortable. It's all about what they perceive as to be the moral high ground or the moral truth with a capital well, that's how the, the like slogan in Trumpism came about the fuck your feelings thing where it's like, the reason they're saying that is because they're like, we know the truth. We have the truth on our side and we don't care how you feel about the truth. And that is hilarious because they are so, 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 so wrong. But it, I, I have experienced this in my own evangelical circles. There's a lot of um, narcissism, but it's, it's more like a moral superiority where, well, I don't care how you feel about that because you, you don't have the truth. I, I understand that the truth bothers you a lot, but Unfortunately, it is, in fact, the truth. And you're like, okay, Ben Shapiro. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, is that you are wrong and you think you have this moral high ground and that's why you think you get to be such a dick to everybody, but you're wrong. Yeah, I think it's a lot of this like condescending nature of things where people want to feel knowledgeable, but they don't want to learn, actually. Um, which... Yeah are attracted I think there are there's a kind of person who is attracted to that security and sense of superiority and therefore they're attracted to evangelicalism because they get to have that like I'm I'm right baby I got it all figured out thing which is like well that must be great for you it would be awesome to to walk through life just knowing what's going to happen all the time but like (laughs) that's an illusion that you have Yes. Um, It's also pretty convenient because you can then use that to justify literally anything that you do. So it doesn't matter what you do, because if you're always right, then you don't have to worry about it. (laughs) Whatever decision you make is the right one. Yeah, the victimhood justification thing. And, And when we were talking about like dystopian futures, I was thinking that what's so frustrating is that the way the quickest way to a dystopian future is actually through something like evangelicalism if you take something like the handmaid's tale as an example like that kind of rigid gender roles is how we get to dystopianism faster like in and so you're fighting against like the breakdown of society when in reality you're like hurtling towards it because that is where you end up if you refuse to let like girls and boys experience other things like right become baby makers and that's it like that is how you end up yeah and I think we've already seen that in terms of white supremacy is that you know our national security was so poor when it was a group of white supremacists that were attacking the capital and the idea that um, they're so paranoid that a black or brown person would do that, and yet they, in fact, are the ones who are attacking the Capitol with all of our elected officials in the Capitol at <laughs> the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, to kill some of them. Yes, yes, with the intention to be violent um, and to hang Vice President Mike Pence. The whitest of all whites, but... He's literally a loaf of Wonder Bread. I don't know what else you want. (laughs) (laughs) What more do you want from the man? (laughs) He couldn't be whiter if he tried. Uh, Anyway, it's the paradoxical, like, 
idea that we should always be scared of these other people when in fact they're the ones doing the most harm. And so um, it's just a constant battle between those two things. And it is of course justified because they're never wrong. If they, if you have God on your side, then what, what more do you need? Well, and I think we have talked more about masculinity as the problem, which, or not masculinity itself, but toxic and then the way it like goes bad. But Kristen in her book, she's a white woman, but she does a very good job of carrying through and anchoring her arguments back to whiteness also, because as we said at the beginning, that is just as important, if not more so, than the the toxic maleness, because even more than being a man makes you powerful, being white in our culture and most of the world makes you powerful. And she does a very good job of not letting that get swept under the rug, that this is not just about gender and sexuality and that expression, but it's also about racism and the way white men and women have weaponized their whiteness to remain in positions of power and then play the victim card whenever that's threatened in any way to like get out of having to be um, held accountable for their actions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we see that pretty um, acutely in the wake of 9-11 and how uh, the fear of communism that fell dormant a bit in the you know 80s and 90s to domestic culture wars was then ramped up in the quote unquote war against terrorism in the Middle East and um, came through really significantly in terms of Islamophobia and xenophobia and an all-out war on Islam in general. And I think she makes a very good point of acknowledging the way communism and that threat to national security was a huge rallying point for evangelicals and thus the Republican Party. But you see that dip down afterwards. And the Vietnam War was so disagreed with in our country and so many people saw how horrible that had been for both Vietnam and our soldiers. And, and so that like common enemy sense like started to decline as like hippiness started to, you know, summer of love, all of that. And the Republicans were really like, well, not Republicans, evangelicals who attached themselves to the Republican party were like, well, what the heck are we gonna do? Like we need a rallying point. And so they floundered for a while with the Bill Clinton presidency. Obviously they got a win when he turned out to be a predator, cool for them. But then when 9-11 happened, they really had a chance to to group again around common enemy. And it was like even better that it could be brown people because classic tale as old as time. That's been working from the beginning. So she does a very good job of highlighting how they weaponize those cultural things to to keep on pushing other insidious agendas, which is like male um, superiority and, and women, female submission and all of that. Yeah. And I think, you know, in terms of whiteness, one of the things that's worth pointing out is how there were 
definitely uh, a significant portion of white women who were not just complicit and thus uh, benefited from the situation, but were active participants in this movement. You know, an example is Phyllis Shafley, who was Catholic herself, but attached herself as a leader in the evangelical movement to white women, as a white woman speaking to other white women about how they need to be a wife, how they shouldn't be a wife. And, you know, there's this one part in the book where she said that she always thanked her husband for allowing her to speak at any event and always referred to her career as her quote hobby, which, you know, I wrote in the margins, uh, <laughs> being oppressed on the libs, which is just how I feel. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> this is your own that part too. She's like, I always do that just to get a rise out of the feminists. Mm -hmm. And I was like, worked. It worked. <laughs> Congratulations. I am risen. <laughs> But like, yes, you're, I love that the way you frame it, like, and I think I see that in like Candace Owens and um, Tommy Laren, like not to mention those names, Laura but Loomer, any number of them. Yeah, they are. They are so they're like, yeah, oppress me, baby. Like, yes. <laughs> I can carry a gun and still be oppressed. It's like mind blowing how. Yeah. And and I think a part of that, I, I guess I have two things to say on that, which is that the first is they're laughing all the way to the bank. Let's be real. While they are understanding that they are oppressed in some ways, they're also making a significant amount of money on this. And if you do a little bit more research into Phyllis Shafley, she, her husband never had to work. He was a stay at home dad because she was able to make so much money off of these book deals and her speaking engagements. So, you know, she's, she's saying one thing out of the side of her mouth. Again, she's performing this idea of femininity. And yet in, in reality, she's the one who's bringing home the majority of money for their household, which she has said is a non, non-feminine way to act. The other thing is, I read this book and I know I've said this to you before, but I read this book a while ago where it was talking about the feminist movement and that there were two goals for feminism. The first was to allow women to be able to do masculine things. And the second was to allow feminine things or traditionally feminine things to be respected. And we really only got the first one. So now I think we see this proliferation of women acting in these male roles, taking out their guns and shooting them, um, saying they're going to bring their Glock to Congress, et cetera, et cetera, to be seen as more male. And yet um, there has been very little progress towards respecting traditionally feminine things. Yeah. And I think you can see that. You can see how that breaks down in the uh, campaign of Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to like dig into that too much right now, but you can, I, I see it all over the place, even from men who are quote unquote allies. Like last week I saw a tweet from a, a guy who I can't remember right now, but he's like, he's like certified on Twitter or verified or whatever. And he's, I think an actor and I think he's a, a man of color, but a person of color, but I don't actually know. Cause I only looked at his photo and I was like, Ugh! because his tweet said, um, if a woman takes a bath and doesn't take a photo of it, she has a stroke. And I, and everyone thought it was so funny. And I like lots of female comedians I know were like um, interacting with it and like laughing about it and stuff. But what it, what stood out to me was the reality that like men can't let women enjoy things without making fun of them for it. And I, I get that that's like, 
that's not the most toxic tweet I've ever heard, obviously. <laughs> not inherently aggressive, but, or it, I think it is inherently aggressive, but it's not like super explicitly aggressive to like femininity, but it's making fun of something that mostly women enjoy and belittling them for it. And right. it's like, and even if you take it a step further, it's like often women will post that photo of like the candles in the bath with their legs and it's like sexualizing themselves, which is totally their right. But it's like women get shamed for doing that. It's like, oh, did you just want attention? Oh my God. It's like, yeah, who cares? Like, that's but also funny. like, why do any of us post on social media? For attention. What are you talking about? <laughs> you don't make it a thing like, oh God, a woman having a sexuality and like being proud of that is such a bummer. And 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 that's not even like I le- I took a leap there, but like inherently his tweet is making fun of women for enjoying something that is feminine. Mm-hmm. And even though on some level that is still funny, I get the joke. It, it's frustrating to have that come from a man where it's like you should be doing all of the work you can to not be making fun of women for doing feminine things. You can make fun of Gun Girl all you want. <laughs> don't make fun of women for enjoying bad. This is Jesus Christ. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I don't think you should be making fun of anybody's hobbies mostly because I think, or, or things that people enjoy, um, unless they're harmful to other people, mostly because I think most of us need more constructive and healthy hobbies. And I'm all behind that. It helps you build community. It helps you have an outlet for things when life is hard, whatever. But the idea that like <laughs> a woman isn't allowed to just live her life without a man having an opinion about it is definitely frustrating. Well, and it's, it's especially acute when it is, like you said, a traditionally feminine activity, like taking a bubble bath. Mm-hmm. It, yes, we are attacked for all things, no matter what we do, but it is so devastating and damaging to attack women for liking feminine things because so much of our culture is saying all you can do is feminine things or you'll get in trouble. And then when we do feminine things, it's like, God, you're so stupid. You like girl things. Like, yes. What do you want me to do? <laughs> Not exist, apparently. <laughs> yes. But, and, and like, obviously it, it's a, it's a double-edged sword too, because obviously men enjoy feminine things too. Men enjoy traditionally feminine things like lighting a candle and sitting in a bath or like crocheting or baking or any number of other things that are seen as traditionally feminine. And so you're also uh, preventing half of the population from being able to express themselves in their femininity. And that is also not good. when you bring it back to the evangelical context because uh if you if you believe in god as a uh a a true divinity in according to the bible he encompasses both masculine and feminine traits all in one and men and women were made in his image and so to dismiss femininity like it's bad and should be avoided for men to be it it doesn't make any sense theologically because saying that like half of God's character is bad or like to be made fun of or belittled, which is like, so clearly they have lost the thread of their own argument. (laughs) Like, okay. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Men aren't allowed to develop those softer, gentler, much more intuitive and emotionally stable aspects of their personalities because 
it would be quote unquote gay. (laughs) Right, right. Which of course is like, it's not just anti-feminine, it's also uh, anti-gay and there's there's so many layers to it obviously but um yeah i i definitely agree with that and i think it's obviously a huge issue (laughs) i've seen a tweet too before that was like guys you do realize that toxic masculinity hurts men right like it's not just about saving the women which should be enough but it's also (laughs) about protecting you from yourselves here women are once again saving everyone um okay so i don't want us to end our first episode without talking about mark driscoll because there's a lot to talk about (laughs) and also because i know that you have had some uh personal run-ins with not just him but his a thread or branch or niche of evangelicalism. Um, So I guess to introduce Mark Driscoll, he, I believe at the age of 25, founded a church in Seattle called Mars Hill, which over the next 20 or so years became a, a, not a mega church, but very close. It was, it's something that's called like a charismatic um, reformed evangelicalism. So which sounds like you're trying really hard not to call it a cult when you're yeah. using so many words to not just say cult. <laughs> Boy, um, it the things it embraces were complementarianism, which is the the concept that men and women are quote unquote equal but different. So men are the leaders of families and the church. They do not have female pastors. Women are expected to be submissive and like provide to, for their husband's sexual needs at all times. That sort of thing but it's couched in a much more modern kind of like women can have jobs and we have like Instagram accounts and we're, we're loving everything. We have money. We spend money. We love money. Like it's all very like we do, flashy. We do water balloon fights for Jesus. <laughs> yeah. It's very like, uh, we love whiskey and we've got tattoos. And so everyone's like cool and hip. I feel like that's a good way of like thinking about it as like a millennial evangelicalism. It's very millennial. So the church fell apart in, I want to say 2015, but that might not be perfectly accurate. It was around then when after years of accounts of Mark Driscoll being verbally abusive, extremely aggressive, um, misogynistic, abusive to his staff, et cetera, et cetera, um, there was enough allegations and enough evidence against him that he stepped down. And from there, for various reasons, the church itself dissolved and then reformed into like some smaller community churches throughout the Seattle area. So it didn't dissolve and like the, everyone renounced the religion and the worldview and walked away. It just kind of reshaped and reformed and, and pastors with very similar doctrines and worldviews to Mark Driscoll, arguably the exact same ones as him, but just packaged a little more neatly and less rough around the edges took the reins of the smaller churches. So the reason I have a personal connection to it was when I moved to Seattle in 2017, I started attending one of those offshoot churches and uh, what a delight it was. (laughs) Uh, 
this is so this is what I wanted to tell you, Kate, that I found out from a, a good friend of mine who also used to attend that church and who has also since left um, about Mark Driscoll that is hilarious and embarrassing, which is the theme of this. <laughs> My favorite kind. Um, the um, Mark Driscoll, the pastor, it was discovered, this is one of the reasons he stepped down, that there was one of the ways that they communicated to people in Mars Hill um, was through like message boards and people could ask questions and stuff. And in her book, Kristen highlights some of the things he said on those message boards. One of them was like a woman asked a question and he told her that he didn't answer questions to women. Like he didn't respond to women, which is like, why was that not enough? <laughs> that <laughs> the reason he got fired. Um, but he also made a comment at, at one point about women being homes for lonely penises, which is again, yikes that should have been enough for him to not be a pastor of any kind um but he was protected in the evangelical homogeny that i mentioned before where even though like pastors had quite differing worldviews they justified the actions of other white male pastors because they're like well you know he's a man after god's own heart like he's striving for the truth like he doesn't do it exactly the way i would but he you know he believes in these things and it's like bullshit he does so the, the, the story I want to tell you was that my friend told me that it was discovered that years before he became really well-known and Mars Hill was super well-known, he was using a fake username on various message boards and across like different parts of the internet to like have super abusive, intense rants against people with theology and I don't know what all, but like a lot of misogynistic, ugly abusive language. And um, he admitted to this secret username. And the funny part is that the secret username was William Wallace. Oh my God. He's so obsessed with Braveheart. I can't take it. What is going yeah. on? <laughs> so the, the reason this is like crazy is because um, Kristen mentions in her book, along with John Wayne, another figure that was like constantly called back in evangelical circles was William Wallace from Braveheart and Mel Gibson himself, which is like gross, you guys, gross. But so the fact that Mark Driscoll, who is still a pastor at some place in like Arizona now or some garbage, not that Arizona's garbage, I apologize, but just like <laughs> he is still doing his shtick, mm -hmm. um, but he he's such a like toxic masculine little boy that he had to have a screen name, William Wallace. Oh. Yes. And also, can I just read this quote from him, which is in her book. Um, she writes about how he was revealed to have been on church's online discussion boards um, and being misogynistic in expressing his views. And this is a quote from him. He said, I love to fight. It's good to fight. Fighting is what we used to do before we all became pussified, before America became a pussified nation. And there's nothing that quite pisses me off, like hearing somebody describe our nation as pussified, mostly because it's a made up word that doesn't mean anything and it's stupid. But again, like the worst thing that these people can possibly conceive of, the worst thing that Mark Driscoll can conceive of is being feminine. And if that doesn't tell you how deeply rooted his misogyny is, I do not know what would. Yeah, and I, I completely agree with you. And back in like 2014-ish, 
yeah, 2013, 2012, maybe. I used to listen to a lot of Mark Driscoll sermons on like YouTube videos because he was, it was before any of the like shit had come out about him. It was still a little early for me to be like super feminist aware. And so I didn't catch the bullshit in what he was saying because, and this is subtle, but important. The reason he got away with it for people like me who were like fairly like progressive all of my time in evangelical circles was that he spoke so harshly to men when he preached. Like he would say those kinds of things, like not to be pussies to men. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it felt like he was critiquing men for failing to be strong and caregivers and and loving and and at the time it felt like yeah that is that's the reason things don't work is because men are not leading the way they should and it's true in a sense that like the reason so many things don't work is because men are toxic and and they choose to continue being that way <laughs> but it was it was like folded in in this way where i mistook his misogyny which was him saying don't you dare be like women Mm-hmm. for him being stop being failed leaders you know mm-hmm. or like whatever yeah. it's also not okay to talk to men and tell them that they're failures just because you perceive the world to not be exactly how you were told it was going to be growing up um because also again how is one individual responsible for everything that's happening in the world <laughs> you know like one person who's going to church on sunday is not responsible for the way that our nation is socialized yes well and like when you start thinking about like the other that that was uh so much of like our pussified nation the reason that's a problem is because then like it could be attacked and national security right yeah this one sermon that i will never be able to forget that i thought at the time was so like amazing and powerful and that gives me such deep regret now but he talked about having false prophets within the church so someone a false prophet for evangelicals would be someone who like was at church and being like you know i think gay people should be allowed to get married like that is what mm-hmm. they would consider to be false prophet because they are blaspheming the bible whatever congratulations i am a blasphemer then <laughs> but um he his whole shtick in that um sermon was you protect the sheep which is your flock your congregation and you shoot the wolves protect the sheep, shoot the wolves. And he said this so many times in this way that felt so grand and like, yeah, protect the sheep, shoot the wolves. And when I think about it now, it's like, so you got to, anytime someone had any critique of you, say that they were a false prophet and sick your congregation on them to quote unquote, shoot the wolves. Like you had brainwashed your people so much that no critique could ever be leveled against you because otherwise they would be shot as a wolf. Like, dude, Pretty cult leader to me. I mean, I think that that's something that most cult leaders understand is that if you can prevent your followers from ever questioning what you say, then you have already won the battle because you don't ever have to really defend anything that you do anymore if they've given you complete trust that you can, you're infallible essentially. Yes. And my this will always be my main critique of evangelicalism and my main argument for why it is a cult. One of the first things it does is to teach you that you cannot trust yourself. Like we talked about before, we are born sinful, quote unquote, according to their doctrine. And therefore you can't believe your heart or your own desires because they're sinful desires. So once you have removed someone's ability to trust themselves in their own feelings, they 
they can't discern when something feels wrong to them, when they are being abused or, co or coerced or manipulated because they no longer trust themselves. And all of the power to trust and believe is put in the hands of someone like Mark Driscoll who then can manipulate and do whatever he wants. And you don't have the sense of self any longer to say, that's not true. And if you manage to do that, you are shot as a wolf. Like it is right. nuts. And that is a cult. Yes. Oh my gosh. Uh, you know, I think that it's pretty telling. And this is the last thing that we have to say about Mark Driscoll because he's really not worthy air. Um, but one thing that is noted in the book is that he was a fan of Mel Gibson and he was a fan of Braveheart. But she has this quote and I'll just read it. Um, she says, like many other evangelicals, Driscoll was a fan of Mel Gibson's Braveheart, but it was the movie Fight Club that more directly inspired his approach to ministry. He encouraged men to engage in theological sparring contests and goaded men in the audience to throw things at participants and mock men who were not adequately prepared or whose arguments were not sharp enough. And so it's really fascinating to me that you would invoke Fight Club as a guide to your spirituality because... If you've ever watched Fight Club, you know that in the end, they're the same person. And so <laughs> Tyler Durgan and the narrator are the same person. It's his alter ego. So the idea of <laughs> invoking Fight Club to describe what you're doing is pretty like a pretty big self-own. It's like, so you know you're the problem then. <laughs> Good keep making every time the call is coming from inside the house it's you bro <laughs> protection from you <laughs> you did it oh my gosh yes well i think that's a good place to leave it we are still in the midst of uh analyzing this book because obviously there's so many themes to talk about and so many through lines that are very relatable. So next time we are going to talk about identity politics as it relates to the evangelical rise um, and theology versus the actual culture of evangelicalism and the culture of consumption and capitalism that really propels all of this to become a massive, massive culture in America that is pretty much unavoidable. <laughs> Hashtag bless. <laughs> Should that be how we end it? <laughs> Join me next time. Hashtag bless. <laughs> you blessed to be stressed. Just kidding. I'm, I'm losing my mind all the time. <laughs>